Good morning, Providence. Our scripture today is from the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the, descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. All right, let's pray one more time. and We'll get into that. Father, uh, I am so grateful uh, as we think about just the idea of missions, um, the idea that everyone in this room is here or is a follower of you because Christians in the past have taken this call seriously, have taken the call to go and to help and to serve. Um, and so God, we're grateful that we are a part of a family that has cared about the mission of God going forward for 2,000 years. Um, God, would you help us to believe this, to see it, to feel it as a church? God, would you help us as we look at this passage in Romans 10? Um, God, do something unique in our hearts. Uh, help me and my words. Help us in our ears. Um, God, as we go through this, give us sharp minds to see some of the complexities of what Paul is saying. Give us soft hearts that it wouldn't be intellect only, that it would draw us into worship, that we would believe it and feel it. And God, we need your spirit to do that. So we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in 2015, uh, my wife and I, we took a group of college students uh, to spend some time in Thailand. Uh, and so like Jared was mentioning, we saw some missionaries over there that we had a relationship with and we spent time in Bangkok. Uh, and then we went up into kind of the northern kind of rural parts of Thailand for a little bit. And one of the things we did when we got to kind of the northern area that we were at was uh, we were able to take, there's almost 15 of us, mostly college students, uh, to go into a school and we, they just kind of gave us free reigns to teach a couple hours every day for a week. So, uh, which looking back feels a little bit crazy that 15 Americans who don't speak Thai could just come in and teach their kids, but they let us and they said, hey, you teach whatever you want. So, be, you know, being good missionaries, we said, let's teach the Bible. So we decided, we kind of built it out, some different stories and lessons. And so Bailey and I, uh, we got to go in uh, and we taught on the book of John. And we were looking at the I am statement. It's where Jesus is describing who he is. So the first day we get into this class, there's probably about 30 kids or so, like early teenagers, like late middle school, early high school. Um, so we get into the class, there's about 30 or so people. Through a translator, uh, we begin and we ask, okay, who here has heard the name of Jesus? 30 kids, about three of them raise their hand. I'm like, wow, okay. So then we ask, all right, could you three uh, tell us something that you know about Jesus? The three hands kind of go down a little bit, right? Because they, they heard the name, they said, 
But when we asked, hey, could you tell me something about Jesus? They said, we don't know. Like, we don't know. We've heard it, but we don't know anything about it. Which for me, uh, it was this like wild experience. Because one, that just doesn't happen here, right? Like we got churches everywhere. Most people have either gone to church before, they know about God and Jesus and stuff. And there's a room full of 30 kids who nobody knows anything about Jesus, And at that point, you know, I had heard some of the numbers. If you've heard missionaries or people talk about the mission of God, uh, you might hear, you know, there's currently 7,500 people groups in the world right now that are unreached, uh, which like a people group is is like a a group of people set apart by like culture and language. So there's 7,500 of those around the world um, that have little to no access to the gospel of Jesus at all. It means like there's less than 2% of that population is Christian, 7,500. So so think about it. Maybe this will help. Think about in your own life, uh, I'm sure most of you profess to be Christians. Uh, Think about how you became a Christian. Like who was it that influenced you? I'm guessing probably a parent told you about Jesus. Maybe you grew up in a good, healthy church that talked to you about Jesus maybe a friend or a neighbor or a youth pastor, somebody was in your life that was telling you about the good news about Jesus. An unreached people group means there's a group of people that don't have anybody in their life. Like there's no Christians, whoever that person was, there's no parent to teach them about Jesus. There's no friend or neighbor that's a Christian that's teaching them about Jesus. There's no church on every corner. This is 7,500 people groups around our world with almost no access to the gospel. Or in other terms, you could think of it like that's 42% of the global population. 3.3-ish billion people with no access to the gospel. And I'd heard those numbers, and that feels like daunting, which it is. Like it feels daunting, that feels big, but it can also almost feel like impersonal. You know, like you hear the numbers and it's so big. But what was crazy is standing in a classroom with 30 teenagers staring at real faces, that's just a small percentage of that 3.3 billion. Like real human beings, real faces that have never heard of Jesus. 30 kids that aren't just like rejecting Jesus, like they've heard about them and they don't want their parents' faith. No, it's 30 kids that have never even heard the name of Jesus. Never know, they didn't know anything about him. Now, someone might ask to that point, Okay, so you got 30 kids in Thailand. They don't know about Jesus, but honestly, like, what's the problem? Like, so what, right? Like, like we can honestly think, maybe most people might argue, okay, that's not that big a deal because they've got their own family systems. They got their own cultures. They got their own faith beliefs and stuff. And everyone is kind of entitled to their own beliefs. So really, what's the problem? There's 3.3 billion people with no access to hearing about Jesus, But why is that such a problem? That question is what we're going to spend this week and next week addressing. We're going to be looking at if there are 3.3 billion people in our world who have no access to hearing about Jesus, not to mention the billions more who maybe have access but don't know him, why is that a problem for the 300 or so people that call Providence Church home in Omaha, Nebraska? Like, why is the 3.3 billion people around the world a problem for us? And if it is a problem, then what do we do about it? Do we just kind of turn a blind eye? Do we just say that's a problem, right? If we see it's a problem, what do we do? Uh, Those two questions 
are actually going to frame the messages for this week and next. This is going to be the whole theme of our missions week. Why is 3.3 unreached people a problem? Because the gospel saves. And what does the gospel compel a church or a people or you to do about it? The gospel sends, right? It's that simple. You know, here at Providence, if you've been around for a while, you've probably heard us say, you know, the gospel is a core value of ours. It's, it's really the foundation for everything that we do, everything we think, everything we believe is, is finding its root answer in the gospel. So any major question we have about anything ultimately can be traced back to an answer in the gospel. So what we're going to do for the next two weeks, or really this whole full week, the next two sermons, is we're going to examine how does the gospel speak to those questions, to the problem of unreached people, and what we should do about that problem. Because, let me say this too, here's just a conviction that is the Lord, I feel like it's just built in me. I believe that a church that believes the gospel must be a church with a burden for the unreached. I don't see any other way around. Like you read the scriptures, you, you hear the truths about God. I, I don't see any other way around it. And actually, let me say this, because even that might feel a little bit like big and corporate for you. So let me say it this way. A person who believes in the gospel must have a burden for the unreached. And I don't want that statement or these two sermons to like kind of guilt you into begrudging engagement and missions. I want us to look at the gospel the next two weeks to compel you to mission. That we would have a couple hundred people in our church that by the end of next Sunday would say, because I'm a gospel person, I'm a global missions person. All right, that's kind of my ultimate goal. Because if we are gospel people, we must be global missions people. And how we're going to do that is we're just going to trace uh, Paul's thoughts in Romans chapter 10. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Romans is in the New Testament. Romans chapter 10. Actually, this week and next week, we're going to be in like one main section of Romans 10. And we're just kind of cutting it in half. All right. So this week, we're looking at the first part. And we're going to look at how the gospel saves. That's verses 5 through 13. Next week, we're going to pick it up and go verses 14 through 17. And we're going to look at how the gospel sends. So for today, if you're getting there, Romans chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 5. And Paul is going to help us understand the problem of 3.3 billion unreached people. So let's start. Uh, let's look at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Okay, I'm gonna stop there for a second. Um, if you've read Romans before, you probably like both simultaneously love it. And if you've tried to study it, you know it's kind of dense and challenging. All right, so I wanna make sure even this first verse is a little confusing. So let's just kind of define some of the terms, what Paul's talking about. Uh, when he talks about uh, Moses writing the law, as he's talking about that, uh, what he's mostly referring to is the first five books of the Old Testament. That, that's kind of categorized as the law. Uh, but a lot of New Testament writers, when they talk about Moses writing the law, it's really just a reference to the law of God in general. Okay, so that's what he's talking about here, just God's law. And then he brings up this idea of righteousness. Now, earlier in Romans, Paul described, righteousness is a big word, he basically described it as being right with God. Okay, that, that's 
oversimplifying it a bit, but mostly just to get a category in your head, you can think righteousness, right with God, all right? Just equate those two things together. To have righteousness means you're right with God. And what he's addressing is, how do we as a people become righteous? How do we become right with God? And at the end of the verse, he says, the person who does the commandments, so who obeys the law, shall live by them. What he's saying is, you obey God's law, you live, right? You obey God's law, you're right with God, or you are righteous. You disobey God's law, and you will not live. Uh, this, this might be a helpful illustration, but the thing that came to my mind as I was thinking about this is like, if you've ever gone um, hiking or you spent time in the mountains, uh, you might've, uh, you know, either from like a park ranger or a YouTube clip or something, been told like, hey, if you come in contact with a wild animal, uh, here's the proper etiquette, okay? Like there's things that you do and there's things that you do not do. So like, let's say you run into a bear just in the middle of a mountain. There's things that you should do. And if you do them, you will probably live. There's things that you should not do to that wild bear. And if you do those, you will probably die, right? There's certain things to do and you get life, certain things to not do and you die, okay? Now, again, that can be a little bit weird, but, but the idea is kind of similar to a lot of things in life. Think about marriage, right? If, if in your marriage, you um, honor each other, you're faithful to one another, you are honest to one another, you do those things, you will have a healthy relationship. If you disrespect each other, if you cheat on each other, if you're consistently lying to each other, that relationship will die, right? There's just certain ways of life that if you do them, they bring life and flourishing. And if you don't do them, they will not bring life and flourishing and it will most likely crash. So God says that in order to have life with him, we have to actually follow his law. If we do, we live. If we do not, we die. And again, that's, that's not like um, God being this like oppressive dictator. You know, he's not Stalin or Mao or Genghis Khan or anything, okay? So it's not this like external law that God says, for me, I want you to live this way. And if you don't, I'm so mad at you, I'm gonna wipe you out. That's, that's not what he's talking about. God's law is not this external set of rules that he's testing you by. God's law is the way of life that leads to life. Okay, that, that's what he's talking about when he gives people his law. Just like following healthy relationship behaviors will just naturally bring about a healthy relationship and unhealthy relationship behaviors will bring a breakdown in that relationship. It's the same with God. You live according to how he's designed and directed the world to flourish, You'll have life and flourishing. If you don't, you will have death. And I think the challenge for us is that uh, this might be your category. So many of us have heard for a while, like the law is just bad, bad, bad. You know, like law equals no good, all right? We don't like the law. But that's not totally true, right? The law is God's way that he has designed this world to flourish and he's given it to human beings to say, if you do this, you can live with me and you can have life abundantly. That's why in the Psalms, David says that God's law is sweeter to him than honey on his lips. He says that I, I'm up in the middle of the night just meditating on the beauty of the law. Think about that. I don't know how many of you are just awake, wide awake at 2 a.m. thinking I am just captured by the beauty of Leviticus. 
I doubt many, right? Like I sleep great at 2 a.m. And I like the law, but I, I sleep great. But David says, I can't sleep because I just, I'm captured by the beauty of God's law. So we can't say that the law is just always bad. God's law is the way of life. It's the way of flourishing. It's how societies and humans live with God. Uh, John Stott, who's an old preacher and, and great saint, uh, once said, the weakness of the law is our weakness. Okay, does that make sense? So he's saying the law isn't weak or bad. It's bad because we can't actually follow it. it the, the issue is not that the law is bad. The issue is that I don't follow the law. And this is what Paul has been saying in the book of Romans. He says that while all people have this law, either um, they can see it around them or it's actually been given in the scriptures, while all people have it, all people have actually rejected it. The Bible calls this sin, that we've actually turned away from God and said, I don't want to follow your way of life. I want to follow whatever way of life that I want to lead. And he says then that we have fallen short of the life that comes from the law. He says, it doesn't matter. This is the whole first part of the book. He says, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or you're non-Jewish, basically, a Gentile. He says, it doesn't matter if you are religious or you're secular. It doesn't matter if you're American or Persian. It doesn't matter if you're from Budapest or Brussels. All people, all time, all places have fallen short of following the law. And this makes us unrighteous. Okay, so if righteousness is right with God, unrighteousness is that we are no longer or not right with God, which is a massive problem for humankind. Uh, because life with God is life eternal. It's flourishing life. Life apart from God is death. And the only way that we can, once again, be right with God is if we obtain righteousness. So what most people tend to do throughout the history of the world is we kind of devise ways that we can get our righteousness, right? So we try to say, here's some ways that I can gain righteousness again. And this is actually what Paul says next. Look at verse six and seven. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, we'll get to that phrase in a minute. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into the heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Okay, so if you thought the last one was confusing, that gets even more confusing. Uh, he's quoting here, six and seven and eight actually, from Deuteronomy 30. So all he's doing, he's quoting from the Old Testament here. And essentially, there's a lot here. Let me just, to boil it down, essentially what he's saying is that as sinners, in order to be right with God, we do need to gain a righteousness. And we will be prone to try to do that on our own. Okay, so we will devise religions and schemes to become righteous or good or morally right or whatever you want to say once again. And that idea of trying to gain righteousness on your own, you can put in the category of works righteousness. All right, works righteousness. That is, we will become good again with God if we do good works. So the logic is our bad works cause the problem. Our good works can provide the answer. Right? We were bad, we'll do some good things, and now we can be right once again. And honestly, this is the basis of almost every religion in human history. 
right? There's something that's off between us and the spiritual or the divine. So we offer sacrifices, we change our life, we do things, we offer things, we withhold from things, all of that stuff. It's based on us doing something to be good with the gods once again. Uh, you've probably heard maybe the, the kind of famous mountain illustration here. Um, the idea is that essentially, if, if you think of God as like on the summit of a mountain, so at the very top, that humans were either born or, or they kind of tumbled in sin or some of the bad things we've done all the way to the bottom, all right? So now we're at the bottom and religion or kind of spirituality is about us finding our way back up to the top, right? Have you heard ideas like this? So it's like, hey, it doesn't really matter how you get to the top, you find your path and you just kind of live your life in this moral progression or this kind of growth in spirituality or enlightenment or whatever you want to say, and you just kind of live your path to try to get to God once again. That's exactly what Paul's saying in verses six and seven. I know it sounds confusing, but at the core, he's saying it's all about either me ascending or descending or doing something in order that I can be with God once again. I've screwed up, I've sinned, I'm not right with God, then I must do something to fix it, to achieve it, to make up for it. This is works righteousness. Now, let me just pause quick. Um, if you are not a Christian in the room, you're here um, checking it out, but you don't profess faith in Jesus, I want you to consider, is the paradigm of your life living with a works righteousness mentality? Like, could your life be defined as, yes, having made some mistakes, having done some bad things, wrong turns, sins, however you want to call it, you've done some things wrong, but really you're just trying to kind of do some good works, find a spiritual path, and as long as you are kind of good enough or close enough in the end, you kind of assume you'll be right with God. Is that, that, is that kind of how you operate, this works righteousness, that the bad you're trying to overcome and you're trying to get a little bit better and you're hoping at the end that you're right with God? I want you to consider, are you living in a works righteousness mentality? And for the Christians in the room, if, you're, if you profess to be a Christian, which I'm assuming is most, I want to ask you the exact same question. It's easy to think, oh yeah, you know, other people, they really do that. But I want you to consider, because there are too many, far too many, especially in our society, that claim the name of Jesus but our entire life and spiritual paradigm is built on the idea of works righteousness. You know, we say, yes, I'm a Christian. Well, why are you a Christian? Well, because I've kind of found the Christian path. You know, I've really tried to, I've turned my life around. Like I used to do this, but now I do this. You know, I've really been taking these kind of, we don't say it like this, but Christian steps. You know, I try to open my Bible. I try to be good to somebody. I try to give a couple times a year. I try to, you know, get to church every once in a while. If our basis of why we are right with God has something to do with what we've done or who we are, your hope is not in God. Your hope is in yourself and your works. This is a dangerous belief because Paul says that will not obtain the righteousness of God. If your answer has more to do with what you do for God than what God has done with you, you cannot gain righteousness this way. Amen. And this belief of works righteousness, it, it is a deadly spiritual virus for you as an individual and for a church, right? I mean, think about how a virus works. 
And I know after 2020 and a couple Google searches, everyone's an epidemiologist and immunologist. You guys get it, I know, but let's just think together then. How does this work? How does a virus work, right? You get a virus, it enters into your body. You're now infected. And the problem with the virus is it clings to you, it clings to cells inside of you. And then it begins to like rapidly multiply, right? That's the problem is that it's not just one little cell now, but now it begins to multiply all over. And what happens to your body is when there is a foreign dangerous substance that's in you, that's multiplying throughout is your whole body begins to break down. It begins to get sick. If it's a really dangerous virus, if it's really dangerous for you, if it, rap- or if it uh, multiplies rapidly, it can affect your whole body and even cause death. Uh, there was a, a couple of years ago, I, I had a doctor who told me that when his family was uh, younger, his kids were younger, they were on a trip once and they were in the uh, airport and they were on the like airport walkways, you know, those things that's kind of moving. So you're on there. So him and his family, he's on there. And he said that he looks back and his, his son, who's small, uh, you know, like the little black handles. He said his son was literally just had his mouth on the handle, just like straight licking it, like just licking the handle. And he looks down and he's like, okay, well, that's not good. Now, what happens the next day? He's got a fever and he's throwing up because he was not safe. He got this virus inside of him. Within 24 hours, all of like, it just rapidly spread and his body was now sick because this virus, these germs, it got inside of him and infected him and began to spread throughout his body. Similarly, if we are not careful, if we play around with the idea of works righteousness, that something I have done has earned my place with God, it is a deadly, nasty virus that doesn't just take place in one part of your life, but it begins to spread. It begins to spread throughout how you see yourself, how you treat other people, how you see the holiness of God, how you see your Christian walk, everything begins to spread and you begin to think that my hope, my growth, my life and community, all of it is based on how I am doing. And for a church, if this begins to spread, it is a crushing weight where we begin to assume not the grace of God for us, but that we all have to look a certain way, act a certain way, change in certain ways, and it's all now on us. So we think, you know, I screwed up, I'll do something to fix it. You know, I looked at something on the internet that I shouldn't, well, I'll make sure to do something nice for someone this week. You know, I cheated on that test, or I lied at that project at work, but God, I promise, I'm gonna start praying more now, you know? I lashed out, I yelled at people, but I'm gonna get to church on Sunday. I'm I'm not gonna, I promise God, I'm not gonna do that anymore. Right, you ever had these thoughts? That's purely works righteousness. That's saying, I screwed up, let me fix it. Let me cover it. Let me do something that can make me right with God again. And those thoughts begin to multiply. They begin to infect. And pretty soon your whole paradigm is works righteousness. And the thing about works righteousness is, it's actually a crushing weight that will crush you. Because it doesn't actually provide any righteousness. Because God says, you don't need to just get better. You need to be perfect. And James says, if you broke one law, you're a lawbreaker. That's who you are by nature in our sin. And God says, you don't need to just kind of get a little better. You need perfection. You need to follow the law to a T so you can be righteous before God. And if none of us are, what do we do? What do we do? What's the answer 
for this problem? Well, that's exactly where Paul goes next. Look at verse nine, or verse eight. Speaking about this righteousness of faith, he says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Okay, so again, this is a a direct quote from Deuteronomy 30, where God's teaching his people that if you want a relationship with him, it's not about what you can do to get to him or how you can kind of conjure him up. It's not about that. He said, in fact, it's not about anything that you can go and achieve. It's not about, you know, this far off distant spiritual high that you have to work to go get. He says, no, I'm actually gonna bring it near to you. Remember, this is Old Testament. And he's saying, I'm going to make a way for you. I'm gonna bring it near. And Paul says that idea, that's the gospel, the word of faith, this this message we proclaim. And what is that gospel message? It's good news for unrighteous people. Verse nine, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He says, how is someone saved from their sin, their unrighteousness? How are we justified, made legally right with God? He says, it's not about what you've done for God. It is only about what God has done for you. He says, the way of salvation and righteousness is not you earning it or you getting to God or you making God happy with you again. It's It's about seeing what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. Seeing that he is Lord over all seeing that he has come to live, to die on a cross, and then to rise again. He says, you aren't saved by your works. You are saved by the person and the works of Jesus Christ. So go back one more time to our like mountain illustration. The assumption sometimes is that humankind again, just kind of lightly stumbled to the bottom, but now we're good and we're ready to climb back up. That's not the biblical paradigm. The Bible actually says in your sin, you didn't just lightly tumble or roll down. It says you actually plunged to your death. Okay, not hurt, dead. Not, you know, sick, dead. Not alive and ready to climb again, dead and hopeless to move. This is what the Bible says. All people, all time, all ethnicities, every last human being, the Bible says is spiritually dead and unable to get to God on their own. In order then for a dead people to get back up the mountain to be with God, he says they cannot do it. God will have to come do it for us. And God does not send the Bible or some moral list just to say, here's how you can now get back to me. God recognizes our death and he descends down the mountain in the form of Jesus Christ. He actually comes into not just life, but he actually goes all the way into our death. You see, we are dead or we earn death through our disobedience. Jesus, though, when he lived, he actually lived according to verse five. He followed every law. He did it right. He earned not death, but he earned life. But in order for you to get that life, he had to get your death. So he came to face the cross. He went to death to pay the penalty of death in order to get you out of death. And when he raised from the dead, it says, he also will raise you up with him. He takes your death on the cross 
and he gives you the life that he has earned. Therefore, you are right with God by works, but not your works, by the works of Jesus Christ that are now applied to you. This is what Paul says. He says the belief of that, that belief in the gospel message that you are dead in sin but raised to new life in Jesus Christ, that has to be in your heart. You have to believe that. And he says you have to confess it with your mouth. Faith inside that that reality then is confirmed by declaring it. Which I I know too, that language or him saying both of those might sound maybe a little bit odd. Like, okay, you gotta believe in your heart and you gotta confess with your mouth. But as I was studying it, I think maybe this is how the relationship works, okay? Because I know that can be a little confusing. So let's imagine that after this, after church, I get in my car and I go and I'm going to drive home. So I get in my car, drive out here to Dodge, I drive down, I pull into a neighborhood, I kind of slow down a little bit, get into the driveway, park the car, get out of the car, walk into the house, give this big sigh, and I say, I'm home. Now, That will be true, those words, if that is actually my home, right? Like, if that's my home, those words are declaring something true. That's a true reality. But if I leave here, I drive to some different neighborhood, I park in some random driveway, I walk into that house, and I say, I'm home. That doesn't make it my home, right? That doesn't make that thing true. The words are just words, but they can either declare a truth, but they do not have the power to make something true. Does that make sense? So I could walk into your house and I could say, I'm home and I don't make it my home. You don't have to turn the house over to me, right? That's just not true. The words are merely words unless they are declaring a reality that is true. So what Paul is saying here is that it's not just anybody can say, well, Jesus is Lord. I guess I'm saved. He's not saying that. He's saying that that faith, that, you know, uh, I think it's First Second Corinthians, says that nobody can say Jesus is Lord, but by the Spirit. The Spirit is what changes our hearts, makes us believe in the gospel, and then compels us to cry out, Jesus is Lord. He has lived and died and rose again from the dead. Those things don't make that a reality in my heart. It confirms the reality and the faith that is in my heart. You're not saved by saying some magic words. There's no like certain thing you have to do. You're saved by faith in the work of Jesus Christ alone. And it's confirmed by you declaring no one saves but Christ alone. Friends, this is how anyone is saved. The problem of our sin cannot be fixed by human solution. You cannot work your way up the spiritual mountain if you're spiritually dead at the bottom. And it doesn't matter where you live, the color of your skin, the family you grew up in, doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or where you're from. You need someone to come and make you alive once again. And there's no one else who has done that, no one else who could do that, but the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. Therefore, no one saves but Christ alone. And that is not just our truth, right? That's not just our path up the mountain, if all are unrighteous and all need a righteousness and no one else but Christ alone can do it, what does that mean then for the billions of people around the world? Look at what Paul says next, verses 10 or 11 through 13. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That's basically saying between the Jewish people and anybody else. So he's saying the whole world, there's no distinction. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For 
everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is one way and one way and only for any human being to be saved, calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says there's no distinction, no distinction between Jews and Greeks. No distinction between black and white. No distinction between atheists or Hindu. No distinction between Afghans or South African. No distinction between church kids and gang members. No distinction between the Hemshin people in Turkey or the Bashkir people in Kazakhstan. No distinction between the Kufra Bedouin or the Tuni people. No distinction between rich and poor. Whatever contrast you want to make, he says no distinction. Same Lord is Lord of all. Same Savior, Savior of all. There is one way to be saved because no one saves but Christ alone. There's no other name in heaven, and our, in heaven or on earth that can save but Christ. So the problem with 30 children in a classroom in Thailand or the thousands of souls in a people group in Northern Africa or the millions of people living in India or any of the 3.3 billion people that do not know the name of Jesus is this. There is no other name to be called on to save and they do not know this name. That is the problem. Why is this a problem? Because there's only one who saves and they don't know the name to call on. If the gospel saves and the gospel alone, that becomes a massive problem. 3.3 billion unreached people worldwide. How will they call on him if they don't believe? And how will they believe if they do not hear? That is Paul's next verse that we're going to get to next week. But for today, before we get there, I wanna end by just asking two simple questions for you to reflect on. If all of that is true, that we are unrighteous, there's only one way to gain righteousness or life with God again, I want you to ask yourself two questions. Number one, have you truly called on the name of Jesus to be saved? I don't want you to assume in this moment because we can't talk about sending, we can't talk about mission, we can't talk about going unless we have come to a saving faith in Jesus. We have to actually wrestle with, have we placed our faith and trust in him alone? Or have you been operating out of a works mentality? If I were to ask you, how are you right with God? And your answer would be more about what you've done than what God has done. That's an indicator that you might be operating out of works righteousness. Is that your hope? Or is your hope that Christ has saved a dead soul and brought me back to life? Second, do you truly believe that the gospel of Jesus is the only answer for the lostness of the world? And I want you to honestly consider this. Do you actually believe that the gospel of Jesus is the only answer to the lostness of the world? Because again, we can't talk about missions, we can't talk about going unless we are saved ourselves, and we can't really talk about sending or going unless we actually believe that it is Christ alone that saves. Because sometimes I think there can be this little bit of a disconnect for Christians. We can assume, yeah, Christ saves. I believe that, I'm operating out of grace. But for some reason, when we see the need that there's billions of people in our world that never have any access to hearing about that, that doesn't burden us. We kind of believe, well, they'll probably be okay, right? No, maybe you wouldn't say that, but we functionally with our lives say, well, I'm sure God will figure that out. Do we actually believe that Christ alone saves and that he is the only hope for the nations? 
Do we believe that? Is that like, has that truth sunk so deep into our heart that it has stirred us to say, we will not be okay with 3.3 billion people who don't even get a chance to hear the name of Jesus. The gospel shouldn't begrudgingly push us to mission. It should compel us by love and care to say, God has made a way for all peoples in all times and all nations to hear the good news of Jesus. And it's the church. It's the church that so believes the gospel and so believes it's the only answer to the lostness of the world that it is sent and that it goes. Do we believe that? Will we believe that? Throughout this week and next, we're gonna ask the question, if we do, then what do we do? What are we compelled to do with the reality that no one saves but Christ alone? Let's pray. Father, We are uh, so grateful for your work to save, for your work to draw near. Um, God, you have taken an unrighteous people, a sinful people, a people dead in their sin, and you have made us alive again. It's the most beautiful news in all the world. God, would you help us to believe it? Would you help us to, to have it deep in our souls? And would that cause something, even maybe now for some of us in the room, uh, for maybe the first time, that that would stir something up to say, um, this is a problem, this is an issue, this is something that you have called us, Providence Church, to take part in. God, I'm so grateful um, for those in this room that are leading the way in that, who, who have a burden to see the nations reached. Um, God, I pray that you would help that to multiply in our church, that we would so understand the gospel and the grace that you provide in Jesus, that it would stir us to action. And we pray for the rest of this week that your spirit would prompt and give, um, give direction to us as a church, to us as individuals on what this means for us. God, we're so grateful for your work. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.